Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. Uh, I apologize for this shirt, but this is my last day of vacation. I'm trying to extend it as long as I can. You can stand with me this morning. We are in the third chapter of the Gospel of John. and We'll read our verses together and we'll dig in. John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came by to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Father, take your word today and let it bear great fruit in this room. No matter where we are in our relationship with you, I pray your word by your Spirit will do a mighty life-altering work, starting with the one behind this pulpit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Really, the message of the Bible can be described in just three words. Generation is what happens in Genesis 1 and 2. Degeneration is what happens in Genesis 3. And regeneration is really the story of the rest of the Bible. And yet it's amazing to me that some people don't even realize that they are lost. I read of such an account in my studies for today's sermon. During a tourist bus excursion to a volcanic canyon in Iceland, a woman was reported missing when she failed to return to the bus. The bus driver waited about an hour and then decided he better contact the Icelandic police. Soon after the missing person's report, they sent out search and rescue teams and even a helicopter to search for this missing woman. About 50 people also participated by foot and on vehicles. But the search was called off in about 12 hours when the authorities discovered that the missing woman wasn't actually missing. More than that, she was actually on the bus and had even been part of the search party. (laughs) Apparently, before re-entering the bus after the stop to tour the canyon, she changed her clothes and freshened up. When she returned, the other passengers did not recognize her. That's hard to believe, isn't it? I mean, 
Connie has freshened up thousands of times over the years. And not once did she come out of the bathroom and I didn't recognize her. Which is a sad commentary on what that poor woman looked like before she freshened up. Not Connie, the Icelandic chick I'm talking about. Anyway, Chief of Police Savin Runerson told reporters that the woman was innocent of the mistake. The chief ends by saying she had no idea that she was missing. But on a serious note, this morning we're going to continue our study of Nicodemus, who, like that woman, while continually freshening himself up with religion, he also didn't realize that he too was lost. We covered verse 1 last time, but I've included it for the sake of context. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In our studies through the Gospel of John, we're going to deal with this great plan of salvation. And we have to credit Nicodemus for at least coming to Jesus. The first thing to notice is that normally natural man left to himself never seeks God. In fact, man will run away from God. This is all a byproduct of the fall. Because if man's intellect was functioning properly, his intellect should tell him that all truth, joy, and peace and happiness is to be found only in fellowship with his creator. But when man fell, his mind began to be warped in regard to spiritual things. So then he now thinks that happiness is to be found in independence apart from God. Now God comes with the offer of salvation and renewed fellowship and man says, No, not that. Anything but that. And he runs away. And so that's why I said last time that I think Nicodemus is a good representation of man who, while religious, is not regenerated. Nicodemus has a resume as long as your arm. He is probably aged or at least very mature. He's powerful, knowledgeable, and an extraordinary man in a culture at least outwardly devoted to God. In Nicodemus' day, if you were to ask an Israelite on the streets of Jerusalem, is Nicodemus going to heaven? They would, all in, they would in all likelihood respond by saying, if Nicodemus isn't going to heaven... Ain't nobody going to heaven. After all, he's a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. He is scrupulous in his obedience to the law, and according to the law, blameless in the sight of man. We know that Nicodemus is serious about religion off the chart. And yet he's about to learn that that is not enough to gain access into heaven. The first thing we need to address is Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. I've always heard that Nicodemus came by night because he was ashamed to be seen with Jesus. That's possible, I guess, but keep in mind this encounter took place during the Passover season. As a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus would have been teaching during this time, during the day. And at the same time, Jesus would have been impressed by the crowds familiar with his miracles. 
Thus, with the days of Passover being extremely busy for both men, perhaps evening was the only time Nicodemus could make private contact with Jesus. Think of it this way. What if you were to say to me that you needed to talk to me? And I said to you, okay, I can see you Monday morning at 9 o'clock. Now, a lot of you couldn't make that appointment because you are working Monday morning at 9 o'clock. Unless, of course, you were wanting to talk about the fact that you can't keep a job, which is something else. So, my opinion, and that's all this is, is that Nicodemus was just a busy man who needed to see another greater man who was even more busy. So, Nicodemus had to come at night. Of course, if I gave titles to my sermons, we would call this one Nick at Night. If you're a visitor, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> the first words out of Nick's mouth is, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. But this isn't entirely true. Jesus wasn't just a teacher come from God. He was God who had come to teach. Moses, Isaiah, and Paul were all teachers come from God. But there was only one God who became a teacher. Nicodemus was initially attracted to Jesus because of the miracles he did. He wanted to know more about Jesus and the doctrines that he taught. We will see later that Nicodemus himself was the teacher of the Jews. He then began to rehearse three things that he knew. One, that Jesus was continuing to do many miracles. Two, that the miracles were intended to authenticate him as a teacher sent from God. And therefore, three, that Jesus was a teacher sent from God to whom Nicodemus should listen. Unfortunately for Nicodemus, the point of the whole story is that Nicodemus' conception of Jesus was wrong in spite of all of his knowledge. His intellect had deceived him. That is why Jesus will rebuke him in verse 3 by saying, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless... They are born again. There had been hundreds of teachers sent from God during the long course of Jewish history. Most of them had been authenticated by miracles. But Jesus was not one of those teachers. They were men. Jesus Christ was God. They had come to teach about God. He was God come to teach, die, and reveal himself to men. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What is surprising to me is what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't respond to Nicodemus by saying, Hallelujah, Nicodemus, you are on the verge of the kingdom. There is a decision yet to be made, and let me describe this decision for you. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. There is a gulf that exists between God and man. That gulf is sin, and I have come to bridge that gulf. Now, Nicodemus, if you would only pray this prayer written on the back of this card and sign your name at the end, you'll be in. But it's almost like Jesus didn't even hear what Nicodemus said. 
His response is so abrupt and it appears so disconnected from the compliments that Nicodemus had been given Jesus. It's almost like Jesus hasn't heard a single thing Nicodemus has said to him. But in actuality, he has heard everything that Nicodemus has said. And he's even more than that, he's heard what Nicodemus has not said. Jesus knows where this discussion is going, and his question is going to be, which is this, how do I personally know God? And so Jesus goes ahead and answers Nicodemus' question before he even asks it. If you've been married a long time, you know what that's like. Here we're given for the first time in the Bible the phrase, born again. Now, in our world today, the phrase born again is often used in a derogatory sense. Even among Christians, there is some kind of separation between your garden variety Christian and your born again Christian. For instance, when they do polls, multitudes of Americans say they are Christians. But when they are asked if they identify with being a born again Christian, the numbers plummet. That's insane. Honey, there's only one kind of Christian, and that's a born-again Christian. Or as J. Vernon McGee used to say, you're either a saint or an ain't. In verse 7, Jesus doesn't say you should be born again. He says you must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. Jesus at this point is now asking for something that is humanly impossible as being born again. He was making entrance into the, into the kingdom contingent on something that could not be obtained through human effort. Jesus was telling him that salvation to God for God was not a matter of adding something to all of his efforts, such as by topping off his religious devotion, but rather it was canceling everything and starting all over again. The shock here is that the only way anyone sees God's kingdom now or ever is to be born into it. Yet no one who has been born only once qualifies. Or as the old saying goes, born once, die twice, born twice, die once. John has prepared us for this earlier in his gospel. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Or we could say, born again. To put it another way, no one gets a passport to God's kingdom. Everyone needs a birth certificate. By calling Nicodemus to be born again, Jesus challenged this most religious Jew to admit his spiritual bankruptcy and abandon everything that he had been trusting for, for salvation. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul did as he declared in Philippians 3.8. He wrote, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, the natural man, of course, does not like this kind of teaching. Why? 
because most people spend the entirety of their lives trying to improve upon their old nature. This may make life a little bearable for other people around you and even for the individual himself, but from God's point of view, it's kind of like painting a water pump that is over a well of bad and putrid water. It's true that a painted pump looks better than an old rusty pump. It can even be given a gold handle. A person can write poems about it, even construct a monument to it. But nothing that is done to that pump will change the fact that it still resides over bad water. No embellishment will change the fact that bad water still flows from it. Let me assure you, a lot of people don't want you to be honest enough to tell them their true condition. I read a story about a pastor that illustrates this truth perfectly. He had come in the early days of his ministry to a very liberal church. His prayer in those days at the beginning, because he knew that many would be offended by the true gospel, was this. He prayed, Lord, just let them leave quietly. And of course, many did leave because of the offense of the cross. The day came when one woman, who had been his greatest supporter at the beginning, walked out of the church very much offended. As she did, she stopped to tell him, Sir, I am leaving this church and I will never be back. No man is going to call me a miserable sinner. Such is the heart of our fallen race. It's like the four-year-old who swears they didn't eat any cookies. And yet there are three cookies missing and their teeth has a suspicious amount of chocolate in between them. Kenneth Weiss wrote this. The teaching here is that man in his totally depraved condition cannot be improved. Reformation will not change him into a fit subject for the kingdom of God. The flesh is incurably wicked and cannot by any process be changed so as to produce a righteous life. What that person needs, Jesus says, is a new nature, a spiritual nature which will produce a life pleasing to God and which will be a life fit for the kingdom of God. I've used this illustration before, but it really fits here. A man once stood on a soapbox there at Hyde Park pouring scorn upon Christianity. He said, People tells me that God exists, but I can't see him. People tells me there's life after death, but I can't see it. People tell me there's a judgment to come, but I can't see it. People tells me there's a heaven and a hell, but I can't see it. He won cheap applause and climbed down from the pulpit. Another struggled onto the soapbox. He began by saying, People tell me there's green grass all around, but I can't see it. People tell me there's a blue sky above, but I can't see it. People tell me there are trees nearby, but I can't see them. You see, I am blind. And just like that, mankind has been blinded by their sins. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, whose mind the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Let me ask us all a question this morning. Are we born again? 
Do we have the life of God residing within us? Is there a new spring of water within you? Are you still just painting the pump over the spring of your old human nature? We all must face this question honestly. For the Bible teaches there is no good that resides in us that can satisfy God's righteousness. In order to please God, we must have the life of God inside us. Otherwise, Jesus says, we cannot see the kingdom of God. But what does that word kingdom even mean? Just know this. We all, religious or not, build our lives on some kind of gospel. Some good news that we believe can redeem our existence. Maybe it's money or success or reputation or health or marriage or grandkids. But everybody has a gospel and everybody has a kingdom. Your kingdom is that little sphere in what you say goes. And people learn they have kingdoms very early on in life. It's why we don't like being told what to do. What is a two-year-old's favorite word? No. Their second favorite word? Mine. That's kingdom language. They are learning they have a kingdom. Here's a good example. On car trips, little kids ask to share the back seat. will usually draw an invisible line right down the middle. In doing so, they're saying, you better not cross over. This is my kingdom. They will even begin to defend their little kingdom. But the problem is, Dad thinks the whole car is his kingdom. He warns the kids to quit fighting. And if that doesn't work, even though he may be going 70 miles an hour, he will turn around in his seat and try to swat at the kids because they're messing up his kingdom. A safer alternative is given by Christian comedian Ken Davis who says that when this happens, a quick touch on the brakes will bring the kids into striking range. <laughs> All that to say, my kingdom is the range of my effective will. It's the sphere where things go the way I want them to go. But Jesus taught us to ask God to bring his kingdom down here. Down here to my office, my church, my family, and my own life. Starting with my life, my body, my little kingdom. Jesus' offer involved the greatest offer of all time. The salvation of your entire life. Not just getting you into heaven, but also getting heaven into you. If we can truly get what Jesus is offering us, it's like finding a treasure in a field that you would sell everything to possess and then laughing all the way to the bank. Verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, what, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? This was simple spiritual teaching, but it was a mystery to Nicodemus. Jesus is speaking of the need for spiritual life. But all Nicodemus can think of is obstetrics. Nicodemus asks, Can a man enter his mother's womb a second time to be born? 
I don't even want to imagine the mental image that was ricocheting around in his head. But think about it. Even if you could return to your mother's womb a second time, you would still be what? Born of the flesh. This also destroys the doctrine of reincarnation that teaches that you are born over and over again in the flesh until you finally get it right and can spend eternity pondering your navel. Sometimes when a baby is born, people call that a miracle. It is not. It is beautiful and it is wonderful, but it is not a miracle. It happens thousands of times every day, even to people who don't believe in God. A miracle is something that only God can do outside of natural processes. For example, my dad's old boss, Dr. Bailey, had convinced me that chicken and dumplings grew on a plant in his garden. Now, that would constitute a miracle. By the time I got out of junior high, I knew he was just kidding. (laughs) Jesus was speaking about a spiritual birth, but Nicodemus could only think of a physical birth. The situation is no different today. When you talk to people about being born again, they often begin to discuss their family's religious heritage, their church membership, religious ceremonies, and so on. Now, this aspect of human nature is, of course, known to God. Thus, much of the Bible is given over to declaring the full scope of man's need for salvation. In fact, this is one of the two greatest themes in all the Bible. The first is the utter inability of man to save himself. And the second is the way of salvation provided by God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. According to Jesus, the starting point in the Christian life is rebirth. I don't know if you knew this, but before your second birth, a man is a child of wrath. He is alienated from God, as Nicodemus was, and he has no real understanding of spiritual things. But Nicodemus still sees salvation as a thing to be earned, and so he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is, it is impossible to do this on your own. How can you, by your own efforts, be born again? Jesus now sinks the sword of grace to the hilt and to the error of legalism. Now, I personally think as many or more people will spill into hell off of false religion or wrong belief about true religion than will ever enter off the path of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Now, why would I say that? I think that even secular polls show that mankind basically thinks their lives are good and acceptable to God no matter what their lifestyles may be. And so when they ask people if they think they will go to heaven when they die, the number is always astronomically high. One poll indicated that for every American who believes that he or she is going to hell, there are 120 people who believe they are going to heaven. There is absolutely no way that can be true. You're thinking, that's an awfully arrogant thing to say. How would you know that? Well, I wouldn't 
if Jesus hadn't said this in Matthew 7.13, where he said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads into life, and there are only a few that find it. How many find it? Only a few. I pray everyone in here will be part of that number. Look at verse 5 with me. Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. At this point, we must acknowledge the interpretations of the phrase of water and the Spirit because many have been given. I will cover the three most popular ones. I'll then give you the one that I think is correct and leave it up to your own study and consideration as to the one that you think is right. One of these interpretations takes the word water as referring to physical birth as when a woman's water breaks. As a side note, please never do that here. I have a very weak stomach. Now, true as this may be, it does not seem to me to be the proper interpretation of this statement. For one thing, the word water is never used in this way elsewhere in Scripture. For another, a reference to the necessity of physical birth to me seems so self-evident that the question would have to arise whether Jesus would even waste words in this fashion. I just can't imagine Jesus saying, Okay, Nick, the first thing you have to do is be born. Can you envision Nicodemus furiously scribbling notes and saying, All right, Jesus, I'm tracking with you so far. Now, the second interpretation of the phrase is that that which sees water as referring to water baptism. Now, this is a very popular interpretation among some denominations. Unfortunately, in my opinion, this is not substantiated either by the text or by biblical theology. The text says nothing at all about water baptism. And the Bible teaches many times elsewhere that no one is saved by any external right of religion. Now someone may object on the grounds that John the Baptist supposedly baptized people for new life, but that's not entirely true. John first called for repentance, and when men or women repented, he then and only then baptized them as a sign to others that this repentance had happened. The proof of this is seen in the fact that John actually refused to baptize certain Pharisees and Sadducees because they did not show evidence of any genuine change in their lives. If you have to be baptized in order to be saved, then you have to at least provide one work for salvation. And the Bible clearly and consistently teaches that that is not the case. Baptism is a sign of what has already taken place but it is not the agent by which it takes place. Jesus was not teaching that the new birth comes through water baptism. In fact, in the New Testament, baptism is connected with death, not birth. And no amount of physical water can transform a person. We'll close this morning with the interpretation I prefer, which is this. I think water is symbolic of the Word of God. And of course, the Spirit means exactly what it says, which will make the next three verses will make clear next week. We know that water is also a metaphor for the written Word of God, the Bible. 
Ephesians 5.26 says that Christ gave himself for the church to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word. In 1 John 5.8, John, the same author who composed this gospel, distinguishes between the witnesses to Christ on earth, of the spirit, the water, and the blood. He then goes on to speak of God's wit written witness of the fact that salvation is of Christ. In this context, I think the spirit must refer to God's witness within the individual. The blood is a historical witness of Christ's death. And I think the water is to the scriptures. Psalm 119.9 declares, How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. Jesus will say in another place, You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. A related text is James 1.18, which actually cites the scripture as the channel through which the new birth takes place, although without using water as the metaphor. It reads, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits to all that he created. We'll come back next week and we'll continue studying one of the greatest conversations in all of history. Father, I do thank you that once again we can gather together and learn from your word. In your word is life. And we know, Father, that everyone in here needs that to some degree or the other. We live in dark times and your word can be a light to our path. I pray that you would enlighten each person here. Reveal yourself to us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.